Good morning, everyone. Good to see some uh, familiar faces. I remember you. I remember, you know, I can go down the list, but it's always good to be here. I'm going to skip the introduction part. I know you've been getting that all summer to the glory of God, uh, but we're just going to jump in. I do want to say one quick word of just encouragement to you and your church. I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful. It really speaks a lot to the health of a church, allowing a lead pastor to take a sabbatical. I live by this idea that the best gift any pastor can give to his church is his own transforming self. And so I know during the sabbatical, he is seeking to be transformed and continue to get healthier and healthier and grow into more maturity so that he can lead the way in helping you guys do that as well. So I hope you encourage him with that as he comes back. I want to begin with just a pretty simple question. Open your Bibles, by the way, to 1 John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be at today. But have you noticed the gap between what you know and what you actually believe. Last year, I decided to kind of limit some of my social media intake. And one of the reasons was because I love my church. We're at Passion Creek in Queen Creek, Arizona. And we just have a lot of ladies in our church who are very active on Instagram. And they're very active in communicating facts that scare me to death, okay? It's all health stuff, right? Anybody else, right? Apparently, the chemicals I've been consuming, it's a shocker I'm even alive here today. And so I've just learned a lot of those things, and I'm not against it or whatever, but it does kind of, you know, give me some anxiety. Uh, One of the things, a few of the things I learned, I remember there was one weekend I learned both of these facts, and it just rocked my world. Number one, apparently, candles are not good for your health. Anybody know that? I had no idea. And so I, this was terrible news for me because for me, me, me in my own life, I have, I'm a very routine person. I wake up every day at 5 a.m., I make the coffee, and then I go to my room and I get the lighter and I light a candle. And this represents the Holy Spirit or something. I don't know. I've spiritualized it. And I get so excited to be in tune with God. And I don't just get any candle. I get the one that crackles. Anybody else got that one, right? You feel like you're at a fireplace. You're not, but it feels like it. And so I go into my scriptures. So now I learn this is terrible for your health. And so now every day I pray because I'm not getting rid of the candle. Come on. So I pray God bless my life and protect me from that candle right there. And then we move on with the Bible. Uh, But another thing that I have noticed, uh, another thing I learned, apparently Pop-Tarts aren't good for your health the lies that we see, right? This world is full of deception. I was stunned by this information. I was shocked. There was like slides, like 18 slides, 18 reasons why it's bad for your body. I stopped at number 11 and thought, I will never again. I don't even want to find out what's at 18. It's probably the worst one. I will never again have Pop-Tarts. I immediately called my mom and said, you need to pay for counseling because you have destroyed me because I'm addicted to Pop-Tarts. Any millennial, we all do this. Mom, you did this to me. You hooked me on Pop-Tarts at age four. You're going to pay for the medical bill, right? All of these things. I was freaking out. If you know me, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. I'm not really exaggerating this morning. All right. It's a pulpit. I'm supposed to speak truth. Now I was freaking out. And so I vowed before God and my wife, I will never have a pop tart ever again, even if they're cherry. And, um, three days later, I finished my last bite of the second pop tart and went, Oh no, I made a vow. And I already broke it, right? Crumbs all over my shirt. You can't have a Pop-Tart without crumbs all over you, amen, to the glory, right? There's just no way. And so I just had guilt all over me. I made a vow, and I, I don't even have enough willpower. I totally forgot three days later. Now hear me, one of the greatest deceptions of our modern age is this belief that our only problem is a lack of knowledge. 
That if we just hear and know about the problem, we will never do it again. As we increase exponentially in information and technology, society believes we will progress towards utopia. How is that working? Right? That doesn't explain the evil and brokenness in the most educated regions of the world. Even in church, we typically approach discipleship, becoming like Jesus, as just information transfer. I mean, what else is this that I'm doing right here? I'm taking information and I'm transferring it to you. One idea, one quote that I kind of live by, I kind of agree with it, but also don't, you'll figure out why in the end of this message, is change your mind, change your life. Now, you can't change your life without changing your mind, I have found. But there's more things that have to change, just besides changing your mind. It sounds amazing. And if you're like me, I grew up in the church and I studied and studied and studied and thought, if I get more information, I will become more like Christ. And yet, there are still habits I'm trying to kick. There's still sinful dispositions. I still want to yell at somebody when they cut me off on the freeway, right? There's still some problems within my soul. See, you and I, we know what's right, but we don't always believe it because we don't always do it, right? There is a gap, and I believe today the Apostle John has an answer for us. I hope you're at 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 7 through 16. I would love to actually invite you, if you're willing and able, to stand with me in reverence uh, for the reading of God's Word. I love the sound of those chairs as you guys pop up. Verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Verse 14, and we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Thank you, Lord. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. In verse 16, and we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in in him. Today I have two objectives. One, how can we know the love of God? And two, how can we believe the love of God? You guys may be seated and let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we invite you into the space. We know you're here. We just submit our attention to you. God, I pray for the people in the room who don't really know that you love them. Holy Spirit, only you can open our hearts to see the truth. And I just ask you that today's text and today's message would penetrate that heart but also for those of us in the room who know you love us. I pray that you would reach us in a deeper way this morning, that we would believe that you love us. And may that truly transform us from the inside out. God, have your way among us. May we be 
doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says? Amen. 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 So that's the first question. How can we know the love God has for us. I'm going to look again at verse 9 and 10. One commentator, as I was studying it this week, mentioned verses 9 and 10. These, these few lines here are, quote, the apex of all revelation. That is an intellectual way of saying, check out this verse, okay? Verse 9 and 10 are pretty incredible. Verse 9, it says, God's love, or agape, was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son. You guys have John 3.16 vibes here, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. John wrote both of those, okay? God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. St. Athanasius, in reading this verse, says that God came down to be like man so that man can now become like God. We don't become God, but we can become like him. That is very, very good news, full of purpose and peace and forgiveness and all the sort. Let's look at verse 10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God. I had a mentor tell me all the time, and I didn't understand it at first. He said, Trey, love God second. It's like, what do I love first? Like, what? This sounds like heresy. And he says, because God first loves you. Love God second, because remember, anytime you love God, it's because God first loved you. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's zero in. If you have, you know, old school Bible in front of you, take your pen, highlight atoning sacrifice. This is what theologians call atonement. Atonement is a word that even other religions use, and so it's really helpful for us to define what this means. Um, And one way my professor in seminary helped me just click, atonement, anytime you see the word atonement in scriptures or atoning, just think at one meant. What does that mean? You and I, we believe the scriptures say that we are separated from God because of our sin. We're no longer unified. We are no longer one. We are fragmented. We are divided, all of those things. The beauty of the cross is when Jesus comes, he makes us at one with him yet again. At one atonement, right? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So John wants us to remember, he's trying to teach us how to know God's love, and he's using theological phrases to communicate it. So allow me to give you some six different theological ideas to help us remember to know that Jesus loves us. Number one, Jesus loves us as our substitute by paying the penalty of sin in our place. Here is the essence of the gospel, right? You and I have sinned. The wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life. It's this idea that because of our sin, we have wrath, we have judgment coming our way. And the beauty of the cross, what John wants us to remember here in this passage, is as if this wrath is coming my direction and Jesus substitutes. He stands in my place and takes all that I deserve. And in return, I receive all that he deserved. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange, right? This is just some theology stuff. Stay with me. He is our substitute. The other thing is Jesus loves us as our victor. How does he bring victory for us? He defeats our enemies and removes all of our foes. We believe at the resurrection and ascension, there are three enemies that we've never had an answer for until Jesus came and did what he did. You have sin, right? Doing, not doing what God told us to do, doing what God said, right? All, we're a mess. Sin of omission, sin of commission, it's 
bad. We have sin, but not only that, we have Satan. He's our foe, right? He brings destruction in this world and also death. I imagine there are many in this room that have people, loved ones that died way too soon, miscarriages, people dealing with disease, our bodies decaying. Friends, that's an enemy. God didn't design this world to be this way, but when sin entered the picture, now we have that enemy, and it looked like he was winning for so long, but Jesus came, and and the tomb is empty, and because of that, we have victory. Ultimately, death has lost its sting, right? He is our victor. The other way Jesus loves us is he's our sacrifice. We see that literally in verse 10. He's our sacrifice by offering himself to purify us and remove our filth. We all know this. This is, we call it guilt. We call it condemnation. We just know that we're dirty, that we've done wrong. Friends, the good news is because of the blood of Jesus, you and I can be made as white as snow. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but you and I maybe have always known that. But my prayer is that today you believe that, that you are clean, you are perfect, you are righteous in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. Jesus also loves us as our second Adam, by bringing new life and removing the curse of death. What did the first Adam do? He introduced death, right? The men are like, no, it was Eve. You know, it was both of them, right? Adam brought forth destruction. We were banished from the garden. And so now we have Jesus who came as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. And he brings about new life and removes the curse of death. The next one, Jesus loves us as our mediator by making peace and removing our alienation from God. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Esther. Esther is a Jew, but she keeps that hidden and she actually becomes the queen of King Xerxes in Persia. But then King Xerxes wants to kill all of the Jews. What do we do. There's only one person who can save the people of God. It's the mediator. It's Esther, who is both in the royal palace, represents the kingship, but also is of Jewish descent. She loves her people. Only she was able to mediate and save the people. In the same way, Jesus is fully God and fully man, the only one to perfectly mediate and represent both parties. And because of that, we are now made united with him. I'm only nerdy for like five more minutes. Are you with me still? All right, last one. Jesus loves us as our redeemer, who frees us from slavery of sin and removes us from all bondage. Sin is bondage. We like to redefine it as freedom today, but I tell you it's bondage. But Jesus has set us free from that. We can be a slave to Christ, the scripture says. Let me put it in one sentence. To put it another way, God loves, God's love saves us from the penalty of sin in our past. He is saving us from the power of sin in the present. And he will save us from the presence of sin in the future. That's the good news of the gospel. The apostle John wants you to know that. He is our atoning sacrifice. Maybe you've heard that news though. And here's the problem. We hear it, we love it, we receive it, we know it, we maybe even can recite it. But something happens along the way, if you're like me, where you know that, you can quote that all day, but there's still a gap between you knowing that and you living it. And that leads me to my second objective. How can we, according to this text, how can we believe the love God has for us. Other translations actually even say rely. How can we rely on it with all of our heart? I'm a fourth generation pastor. Without any doubt on my mind, I can tell you God loves you. 
It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter what you did this morning. He will forgive you. He will sanctify you. You have a purpose. You have a future. God is so good. He is way more gracious than you ever think, ask, or imagine. He will do so much for your life. But I find it really hard to tell that to myself. Anybody else? But when I sin, it's a different ballgame. And I always think, I know better. Like, I understand if they did that because they didn't know any better. I know better, and yet I still find myself doing that. Does God really, do I really believe in the depths of my bones that He loves me? Psychologists call this, this difference, this dissonance, the difference between stated spirituality and lived spirituality. Most of your guilt, depression, condemnation comes from the fact, especially as Christians, we state we know we're forgiven, but we don't live like we're forgiven. We state like we are righteous, but we don't live like we're righteous you with me? There's a, there's a gap between what we state we believe and how we live what we believe. The same way there's a gap between me knowing I will never have a Pop-Tart again. I had one on the way here this morning. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I should have. Uh, wouldn't that have been amazing? Like pop it out right now. Now, in the same way, we know sin is bad, it's destructive, and yet three hours from now, some of you will engage in a practice you committed and vowed you would never do again. Now, here's the thing. I want us to make sure we know all of us have this gap. That gap will only be made completely erased when we are with God for eternity. But as I've done ministry, I have learned there's not a lot of us that are self-aware. Have you guys noticed that, right? Like even this, like I wonder in the room, how many of us think there's no difference? You know, no, I I live what I state. We're good. Let me ask you two questions, two self-reflections that help me realize how much of a gap I still have in my own life. Psychologists actually use these two conditions to point the difference between your state of spirituality and your lived spirituality. The first question is, what do you do when you're experiencing boredom? Remember the, remember boredom in the nineties, right? It's, it's not as common today because we have a phone, we have 24-hour news cycle, we have all sorts of things. But what do you do when you feel bored? For me, oh man, it's a lot of stuff. I pick up my phone, I want to listen to an audiobook or watch something on YouTube, figure out how Tom Cruise jumped off that mountain without dying. Like, was that really real? I did that yesterday. It's true. Um, what do you do? Do you indulge in food? Do you come up with new tasks to stay busy so you don't really think about your impending death. I don't know if anybody else's existential crisis like me, but those happen all the time, right? Like, what do you do when you're bored, right? And the reality is, as followers of the way, we should answer when we're bored, we pray. We meditate on what I read earlier that day. I, I call a friend and I honor him, right? I speak life. I, I lead somebody to Jesus. I, I share the gospel. If those aren't the answers, no guilt, but just know you have a gap between what you state you're doing and what you're actually doing. Second question is even more hard, and, and, and I pray that you receive this in grace, is what do you do when you're experiencing a crisis? See, boredom and crises really expose who you really are. When you receive the divorce papers at your workplace, what do you run to? When you receive a devastating diagnosis from your doctor, what do you do? The Apostle John is trying to train us into the way of Jesus, that really what we do is we run to Christ. We practice the way of Jesus. We're in fellowship. We pray together. We cry out to God together. We study the book of Job together. 
become experts on God's revelation on suffering. This is what we're called to do. But I think most of us, we're so used to that gap. We're like, of course you go to Cold Stone and get ice cream when you're sad. Of course you just are on social media. We need to hold ourselves a little more accountable and realize the scriptures are calling us to not only know the love of God, but to rely on it and to believe it and to do it. What I love about this passage is that God doesn't want to leave us in that gap. That he has designed a way for you and I to close that gap between stated beliefs and lived ones. And I pray that we have eyes to see and the ears to hear God's invitation. Here is the, I think, the main idea for today. Isn't that what Pastor Scott does? The big idea? I didn't label it big idea, so do it right now. Big idea. Okay, here we are. The bridge between knowing and believing is remaining. You notice that word remaining all throughout the text as we read it together? Remaining is everywhere. If you know John, it's like his favorite word outside of love. John 15, what did Jesus say? I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, remain in me, dwell in me, and you'll produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain. This idea of remain is really, really important. Again, your translations may say abide or dwell. What's helpful to know is throughout church history, theologians have said this word remain has the synergism to it. In other words, there is a part that we play and a part that God plays. So we're not really remaining. God is a God who remains, but we don't really experience that abiding if you and I are not also abiding. You see that? Now, I don't know the math on it. It's probably 95% God, 5% us. But there's something that happens that God infuses us with power and transformation when we put in some effort as well to abide and remain. But we are gospel people here. Amen. We know we can't do anything outside of God. So first and foremost, we need to remember this abiding, this remaining is first and foremost only because God is the one powering it. Write it this way. We remain in love through the Holy Spirit, not a hurried spirit. I know in my own transformation, I have a gap between stated and lived because I don't allow Jesus enough time to change me. I want to hear a word from him, but five minutes goes by, I'm turning on sports radio. Right? I don't give the Holy Spirit enough time because I have a hurried spirit. I think it's so helpful to know about John here. What I love about first John is we also know about his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is a young disciple. Right here, he's now an old man. Think of this letter as like a grandfather writing to grandkids. It's gentle. It's loving. It's awesome. But did you know what Jesus liked to call John in the Gospels? Son of thunder. And it's not because he was ripped like Thor, okay? What he meant was, you, you got a hot head. Just like Peter, you got a temper. And I know this because of one story in specific. John was walking with Jesus, and he, they were in uh, Samaria, and the Samaritans were rejecting Jesus. And this made John so mad. He's so impatient. He says, you know what, Jesus? I got a brilliant idea. Call down fire from heaven. Kill them! Because they don't believe in you. Wipe them out. And this same young John is now saying, remain in love. Right? love them, love your neighbor. Like what happened? He was transformed, not with a hurried spirit, but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did a work in his life and he, went, he once was the son of thunder and now we know him as the apostle of love. I don't care your backstory, the same could be true of you. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he actually charts the slow progress of love. And I want to 
I want to look at that with you today. He, he, he has this idea looking at people's kind of looking at the history of people, if we keep giving God the reins, there are, there's this progression of love that we grow into, especially if we rely on the Holy Spirit. Number one is just love of self. So to be a human is to love yourself. That's why Jesus says what? Love your neighbor as yourself, because he already assumes there's a, there's a desire for you to do well, right? So there is a love for self. Bernard calls this an immature love. Everything is for selfish gain. We all know this. I can move on. And you're thinking, yeah, it's my kids right now. Yeah, and probably you too. Now, the second one is love of God for self. And this is how most people come to saving faith, right? The beautiful news of the gospel is not just that God is God, but that there's benefits when we surrender to him, right? Psalm 103 says, forget not his benefits of forgiveness and and love and redemption and purpose. And so a lot of us come to God. Bernard calls this prudent love. And it's okay. We turn to God because God gives us what we've always wanted. And we hope you graduate beyond that, but you don't pass it. All of us have come to God because we're like, well, I'll take forgiveness. I'll take a new purpose. I'll take a bright future. But if you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to really work in you, this love, too many of us stop here. And my, one of my life desires is that I myself go to these next two stages and I become a pastor who helps people progress to these next two as well. The next stage, and it's wonderful, is love of God for God. Bernard also calls this the unselfish love. Here's what happens when you live long enough. Disappointment and success teach you that all these things you want in life isn't as great as you thought it would be. Right? Like you actually got the job you always wanted. You got the wife you always wanted. And it's amazing, but like there's still something falling short. And so you have a light bulb moment in your spiritual formation and you realize, oh, God is the greatest gift. I'm here for God. You'll know those people in the room who are here because they're like, why are we singing about our feelings, right? Let's just talk about how holy and righteous and powerful it is. And the answer is because there's other people who still need to go through that stage of love, right? But it's this amazing revelation. I'm here for God. God, you can take away everything. As long as I have you, I have enough. There's even a fourth stage that's super rare, is love of self for God. Bernard calls this perfect love, which perfect love you start to read in verse 17 and on. It's a major theme for 1 John. It's where you love God, but you also love yourself so much you can actually love the world correctly. Have you noticed when people love themselves, they'll act like they're loving you, but they're only loving you because they want you to love them back? You know, I got some friends they give me big birthday gifts. I'm like, no, now I got to get them a big birthday gift. You know what I'm saying? It's this give and take. And it's exhausting. And I think Jesus always talks about that's why we give to the poor, because we know the poor can't give back to us. That's true love. Right? You really know love has saturated your bones when you give in secret. You don't want the credit. Why? Because it was never about you. You're content. You're good. You're here to love people and love your neighbor. It's a beautiful picture of what God is calling us to. And here's the reality. You can't rush this process. If you're at stage two, you're not going to walk out of here all of a sudden, stage four, you're just the most heavenly saint. Here's what I have found. Holy Spirit's transformation requires us to lean into love, and love is spelled T-I-M-E. It's gradual. It's gradual. Love takes a while to take root. But thankfully, we can 
Be patient and do that because we have the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 again, this is how we know that we remain, abide, dwell in him and he in us. See that synergism, he has given us of his spirit. This is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. So a lot of love, a lot of us transforming, closing the gap between knowing and believing is all God. God, I'm surrendering to you. You transform me into that person. But there's another part of it where it requires our activity. And when I understood this a couple years ago, completely transformed my life. I decided this will be my main message as a pastor for the rest of my life. I love to teach hope, but I also want to preach habit because here's the reality. Remaining in God's love takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of intentionality. This is extremely hard for us to believe because we are in a culture that says love just happens. The heart wants what it wants. I can't choose that love. I was born this way. It's just how I love. We believe that through and through in our culture. The scripture says otherwise. Here's what the Bible says. We remain or abide in love through our habits, not our happenstance. Friends, it, is just, it doesn't just happen. It requires intentionality. I believe it is not a coincidence. And hear me in the spirit of grace. I don't think it's a coincidence the majority of Gen Z are doubting their sexuality in a way their grandparents rarely ever did. It's not there's like something in the water. No, we've been habituated. We have been reminded. We have been trained through our minds and our bodies and our hands and our hearts, repeated this message over and over, and eventually you start to believe it. Habits shape your heart. What you do does something to you for the good or for the bad. For years, it's kind of been my mantra, and I just want to know, who likes country music in this room? Anybody like country music? I hate it. All right, so now that we're clear here, I've lost half the room. Uh, I just never liked country music. I'm like, it's about losing your boat and your horse and a girlfriend. Like I heard one song recently. It's like, I got to sell this beautiful truck that I love because like she sat there once. I'm like, really? You know, like this is country music for you. All right, here we are. You know, this is welcome to 2023. And they're rapping anyways. Okay. So unfortunate for me, my wife loves country music. I mean, she's obsessed. We have a, we really practice Sabbath a lot at our house. And one of our things is we turn off the TV and we play music. So I'm thinking, let's play like Jesus music, you know, because it's Sabbath or Paul Simon. I'm okay with both. And she plays country. And I'm like, how does this give glory to God? Whatever. I let her do it. She, you know, is in tune with the father. I don't know how. No, as a sacrificial husband, I allow it. And so especially as we drive, right? Um, she's the DJ. And I say, hey, babe, play whatever you want. And what does she play? Country music. And it's just... <laughs> All right, let's just keep driving, right? Kids talk so we could turn down the, which they always talk. Amen, parents? It's like they won't talk to you all day until you get in a car. Anyways, all right, so years. She's done this. I've been, we just celebrated 10 years in June. Always, country music in a car. And a few months ago, I hate to admit this, I woke up and I, the first thing I had was a song in my heart. I woke up and I was like, Heads Carolina, tails California, maybe she fall for a boy from South. I was like, what is happening to me? Why did I sing this song? And I look at my wife, she's still sleeping. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord, because she'll never let me live that down, right? She'll be like, ha, I told you, right? And as time has gone by, I can't wait to drive in the car. I'm like, you can, you can play, you can play country. 
She's a Niners country fan, like I am. Hey, I'm like, whoa, right? I love country music. How? My wife, for 10 years, made me listen to it over and over. It took 10 years. That's how bad country is. But what happens is what you consume will eventually consume you. This is why Proverbs 4.23, my youth pastor used to say this all the time. I never understood what it meant. He says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life, abundance, grace, hope, purpose, right? Guard your heart. I'm like, how do I guard my heart? Bench press? Like, what are you saying here? How do I guard my heart? And I've lived life now and realized, oh, to guard your heart means you guard your habits. And your habits begin to guard your heart. What you do does something to you. And so I think what John is saying here is we need to know and believe the love of God. And to get to that belief, you have to remain. And to remain means you do it over and over and over again. And you go from knowing it should be good to thinking it's good, to believing this is all I have. And that takes time. I want us to ask, I want you to really reflect. What happens if we replace the radio, podcasts, with time alone with God in prayer? I drove this morning two and a half hours and silent. That was hard. But I thought, I want to become the type of person that can be silent with God, so I'm going to start doing that now. What if we replace the news? with face-to-face conversations with people we love. We say we want to be loving people, but if we're hearing fear-based news all day, who do you think you're going to become? One thing we're trying, it feels weird, we took out the TV from our living room. So like when you go into the living room, everyone's like, what's wrong with this space? It's like, we got rid of the TV. Where's the center now? It's so funny. We're like, how do we live here, right? But it's, we're talking way more than ever before. We're reading more than ever before. It's been incredible. We're changing these habits. What if we replace gossiping with honoring? Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite lines, he says, the only, (laughs) so good. He goes, at a church, especially a Baptist church, which I can make fun of because I am. He says, the only thing that, uh, he said, (laughs) sorry, I messed this up. This is what happens when I go off notes. He says, usually at a Baptist church, there's more gossip than casseroles. (laughs) We got a lot of casseroles. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? What if we replace those habits? I can go on and on, and I want you to begin to process with God this week what that looks like. But let's look at this verse again. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains, abides, dwells in love, remains in God, and God remains in him. Friends, the gospel, the good news is not just that you know it but that you believe it to the depths of your bones. So what does that look like for you? I want you to kind of give a moment here as we're about to start worshiping again. A moment to surrender the Holy Spirit. Maybe for you that means to surrender, to say, you know what, I don't need to hurry. I don't need to hurry and become someone. I just need to allow the Holy Spirit to use who I am. Let Him do His love and His work. When you're bored, Lean into the Holy Spirit. When you're in crisis, lean in. And others of us, the takeaway the next step today is just to begin to replace our habits. What type of person are you? And what habits have you been doing that has contributed to being that type of person?
And I trust the Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom to know. What do you need to take away? What do you need to add? But I pray that you do this because there's nothing better than the love of God. And the invitation today is to remain in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. God, I I just know that you've changed my life when I began to take real intentional steps to hear you, to be shaped by you. And so Holy Spirit, give us that gift of not hurrying ourselves, not condemning ourselves, realizing we're a work in progress, but that God, all these things we really desire, closing that gap between knowing and believing ultimately is on you. And so we surrender and ask you, God, to close that gap. But God, I also know your invitation to us today, and I pray that we'd really even try tomorrow morning to take a habit that's probably forming us into a person of anxiety, and may we replace that habit that forms us into a person of love. What we do does something to us, and God, may we be doers of the word. May we be taking your invitations to practice your way of life so that it becomes our own. Oh, Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.